Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Keyes Adair and Kiyomi Sanchez Suzuki Colgrove, the authors of the new book, Segregation by Experience, Agency, Racism, and Learning in the Early Grades. Jen and Kiyomi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Jen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of early childhood education at the University of Texas at Austin. And Kiyomi, could you introduce yourself? I am a professor um, in Texas State University. I work with the uh, bilingual program as well with the early childhood teachers and preparation. All right, great. Thank you both for being here today. So we'll just go ahead and jump in. And this first question is for Jen. So this book is a book about students learning experiences in a first grade class. And you worked with Ms. Bailey to observe and document her students' learning. Tell us how you found Ms. Bailey and what her classroom was like. So we actually spent, as a research team, Um, Kiyomi and I and a few um, graduate students spent months trying to find Miss Bailey's classroom, months, because so many of the schools that we went to, we saw, we couldn't see children using their agency because they didn't have much. So we would go to schools and they would be walking down the hallways um, with their hands behind their back like a prison line kind of, and not kind of, like really look like a prison line. And they'd have bubbles in their mouth. They couldn't talk to each other. They couldn't move around. If they were going to move at all, they had to raise their hand each time. Um, And you would just see, like, it was a constant control, a constant reprimanding kind of context. And school after school, after school, after school, this would happen. And we would go to schools just because out of curiosity, I'd go to schools that were mostly white and wealthy, and that was not the case. We could find plenty of white and wealthy schools where kids could use their agency and where they were given the benefit of the doubt all the time. But when we were in mostly when we, when we were in schools with mostly black and brown kids, um, the control mechanisms were overwhelming, and children had so little agency that we couldn't actually see that what they did with it, which was the whole point of our study. So eventually um, we went to visit Miss Bailey's class and um, it was immediately different. Um, Things, when we walked in, the relationships that they had with Miss Bailey, the way that they could notice a need or they could observe each other, the way they like chatted with each other (laughs) and told each other stories, they had a lot of decisions they got to make, um, but it wasn't disrespectful. It wasn't like kids all over the place. It was a really beautiful, culturally 
sustaining version of agency and we wanted to document it. Nice. So Kiyomi, can you follow up on that and tell us, so I, I feel that we kind of just heard how Miss Bailey's class was different from so many first grade classes, but can you talk about the structures and policies in place that make environments like Miss Bailey's classroom so rare? So one of the things that we noticed that in that classroom, there was a lot of embodied learning, um, a lot of paying attention to children ideas, knowledge and concerns. And I think that makes the whole ambience and atmosphere and the core of the classroom very different. Um, her classroom was really alive, like Jen said. Um, kids have opportunities to move, to talk, to share, to express themselves. And I think those were the things that make the class so alive and special because allow children to actually engage in a lot of conversation, not always about learning. So they weren't always learning about something, but they were actually learning about themselves. And that opportunity to learn about themselves really create a, a strong community that you can see that happen among the children and also with Miss Bailey. And I think that if you think about structure, that's one of the things that actually create that, that opportunity for learning in that way. They can actually experience and embody learning in a way that we didn't have opportunity necessarily to see in other places. So Jen, from your time in Miss Bailey's class, you created a film that depicts a composite typical day, which is somewhat of an unusual data collection method or research project for education researchers. So how did you decide to make a film and what did you do with it after you made it? So Kiyomi and I are both trained as anthropologists who work in education. So this means we want, unlike sometimes developmental psychologists or even sociologists, um, we are really interested in seeing children in their actual environments, um, not away from their real-time world environments. And so we want to see them to understand their lives from their perspective, how they see the world, how they're making sense of things. And we use a specific method called video cued ethnography. Um, I was trained by Joe Tobin, who, who started this method, video cued ethnography, with a study in the 80s called Preschool and Three Cultures. And, um, and we follow kind of a um, a revamped version of, <laughs> of what he did back then um, with some shifts. So we basically, we spend about a year in the classrooms that we study. And we're always looking for classrooms where children of color have agency because we want to counter all of these deficit and racist stereotypes about who can handle freedom, who can handle their agency, and this tremendous amount of control that we exert over young children of color from such an early age um, in these institutions, particularly school. So um, we spend about a year documenting all the ways that children use their agency. And during that time, as the community is more comfortable with us, um, we start, we film three full days and then we show that footage. We kind of edit it down to like 20 minutes. And then we show that footage to the kids in the film. We show it to their parents. We show it to the teachers. And all of them give feedback about what they're seeing. And using all of that um, understanding and expertise, we put together, we kind of re-edit the film until everyone is really proud of the film. 
And they also help us understand what we're seeing. So they're kind of like co-analyzers and co-editors of this film. And then um, after that, we end up showing it to lots of schools um, and lots of places. And we show we show it for the sake of like a prompt, like you would ask, like you'd have an interview prompt. We use the video that way. So we show the video to lots of teachers and schools and kids who have never seen the school before and don't know them at all. We show them the film and we say, what do you think about this way of learning? What do you think about what the kids are doing? Do you think this is good learning? Um, and those questions are what become the craziest part of the study <laughs> is how people respond to the to these films. Great. So let's get into that then. Kiyomi, can you tell us about the reactions that you got from educators and what surprised you from those reactions? So when we show it to um the teachers, um, we were really excited to show the film. So Jen and I were like, okay, this is so awesome. They're gonna get to see this amazing classroom. We want them to see it. And and we were really looking forward to their feedback. And um, when we show it, they like it a lot. A lot of what they got to see in Miss Basie's classroom, what the children were doing, how they were talking, the amount of conversation, the, the vocabulary, the rich vocabulary that all the children have, and how they ask questions, how they help collaborate and all of that. Um, but unfortunately, when they come to actually thinking about their children, we got to see a lot of uh, deficit ideas about their communities where they were working and the children that were working. Um, and that was really heartbroken for us. Um, but they got to um, give us an explanation and talk to us about the reason why they think that they, what they got to see in Ms. Bailey might not actually work um, in their classes. And one of them, and, and you're familiar with that word, was uh, the work up um, argument, deficit views of the family and the children. And also there's a lot of pressure for standardization, exams, tests, and get children, especially because we work with a lot of bilingual classroom and ESL classrooms, um, the idea to move them into English. Um, so there, there were many reasons for that, but that was one of the things that we noticed from the teacher. What they like it a lot, they didn't see the possibility to actually implement it or do some of the stuff with the children, even though they really like agency and they felt that was really important. So that was kind of like a heartbroken, but it was, it was a great way to think about the work that we continue to do. And then what happened when you showed it to parents? How were parents like or different from the teachers? The parents, the, the, they actually, the, the video cue ethnography worked so beautifully in the way that most of the parents that we interviewed were um, Latino immigrant families. And so they participate in the schooling with their children. They go, they participate, they go uh, to parties, um, chaperone, they go to parent-teacher conference. But they really don't get to see the classroom in action. So they don't get to see what learning when happen actually in the classes. So the video, the film was really a window for them to see. So when they and they got to see all the stuff that the children were doing, they liked some and they didn't like some of them too. They have concerns certain over certain things, like um when they were working on the uh, they were paying attention and spend some time in the accident. Uh, to give you an example and how they were deviating maybe from the curriculum. We learned that parents are very familiar with the curriculum. They're familiar with the things that children are doing, but they never get to see the practices in place. 
So that was really interesting how they they were concerned. I'm sending my kids to school to learn, not about accidents, but about these things. While in the same focus group, you have parents who really like the accident. So the dialogue that creates the film, it's very rich where parents are kind of responding to one another and, and, and trying to explain the way they think about this stuff. And one of the things we learned too is that they were very grateful to participate in the study because many times I know asked about their opinions, what they think, their hopes, and what they want for their children. So I think that was that was something that happened in, in almost like a platica where parents support each other, give advice to one another. Um, so it's quite magical what happened, especially, I mean, it happened with all the focus group, but with the parents in having this opportunity to view what is schooling in the U.S., um, that is something that they really don't have the opportunity to see or witness. And Jen, what about children when they watch the film? What did they think? So Kiyomi's used the word heartbroken a few times. This is the real heartbreaking part is um, we showed the film to, to 99 children um, and 99 children thought that the practices in the film, the children getting up and helping each other without raising their hand, teaching each other, um, reading together, choosing what they read. Um, all of these things were bad. They were bad behavior. The kids should be in trouble. The kids shouldn't get up. That's the teacher's job. Um, knowledge to the, the five and six and seven-year-olds that we interviewed was knowledge was only inside of the teacher. It did not come from them. So and that was true no matter where we showed the film. So that happened. It, it didn't matter if it was um, a border school, uh, urban school, a suburban school. The kids responded the same way. And it really showed us how deeply internalized these ideas about who they are and what they're capable of, how early that starts. Um, and because they couldn't use their agency all of the stuff on the screen didn't make any sense to them. It didn't have anything to do with learning. If learning comes from the only from the adult in the room and it comes from control, like if you open your mouth, they would say things like, if I open my mouth, my, the ideas will leave my brain. So like any kind of this, that's, this wasn't one we never offer examples that happened one time because we're anthropologists, we're interested in patterns. So like these were things that were said in different contexts that didn't know each other, but they had the same reaction to the film. And obviously that was surprising to us, um, but also very eye-opening how early kids learn what society expects of them and the very different ways in which children are told what learning is. And for anyone that's gone to college or has learned a trade to any kind of like high quality um, level, you know that learning is not simply following directions. Learning has to do with mastery and trying something over and over again and experimenting and watching and observing and and getting help and, and also teaching others, like learning is so complicated. And yet these five, six and seven-year-olds had already internalized that really what society expects of them is for them to be quiet, to follow directions, to be still, to be silent. And to me, that's 
I mean, that is basically how racism and white supremacy works is certain people get those messages and white wealthy kids don't. So that leads us to something. Yes, please. Sorry, Laura, can I add something? And this is, I think what Jen just described is what is the most depressing thing because we know that bilingual children need to talk, to practice. Um, and when they were in those quiet spaces that really didn't help for their learning, um, to ask questions or communicate things that really happen in the film, but they didn't have that opportunity to do. And understanding that that's learning, that is very problematic if you're trying to learn um, to continue to develop your language and learn your language and also learn English. So it was very, um, I don't want to say how broken, it was just, it was very frustrating to see it. Sure. Yes. Thank you for adding that. So this question is for you, Jen. The title of the book is Segregation by Experience. And across the book, you use the idea of the racial contract to theorize and explain your data. So can you tell us about how this theory, as well as your theorizing about agency and racism, helped you make sense of the experiences available to children in early childhood education? Sure, I will give it my best shot. Um, <laughs> Um, in the book, actually, the the chapter that really goes deeply into the racial contract was moved from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Um, and for lots of reasons, but one of the reason is that it gets so complicated and it feels um, Charles Mill's work is, on the racial contract and and a lot of his um, political theory really aims to show how intentional racism and white supremacy is. And that's really hard for particularly white people to swallow. I think most people of color know that. <laughs> they experience it all the time. But I think for white people, um, it feels really harsh and a little like extreme. But by the time you get through this book and you see how all of these kids react, suddenly what Charles Mills is saying doesn't seem that extreme anymore. So what we found is that particularly educators, and this was teachers, but also administrators um, at the district and school levels, um, you people may think these are best practices. They, they may say, I really like what Miss Bailey did. I think, you know, ultimately, or like, Ideally, this is what we would offer children because this is what's best for the way that they learn. They learn in sophisticated ways, really dynamic ways. Yeah, kids are really smart and capable. But in order to have agency, the kids were constantly put in a, in a no-win situation that they would have to prove they were worthy of using their agency or they'd have to show that they could handle it or they'd have to prove or earn it somehow like Fun Fridays or like, okay, one day a month, you can have a party where you choose what we're going to read or you choose what we're going to watch. Agency was really something that had to be earned. It had to deserve. And that was confusing to um, Kiyomi and I and our whole team because these were loving, kind teachers. These weren't horrible people. So why was, why did this seem okay? And as we started reading the racial contract, we started seeing how loving teachers could get caught up as we all are honestly in this 
this system where some people get rights and privileges just by existing and everyone else has to prove that they deserve or they're worthy of, or they have to earn the rights and privileges that others just receive freely. So the create the the it shouldn't be crazy, but the crazy thing about Ms. Bailey's classroom is that children of color in her classroom did not have to earn their agency. They just got it because that's good learning. In all of these other contexts, children had to constantly prove that they could handle it, that they were worthy of it, um, and that they could use their agency. The thing was, is that we learned in the, and the book talks about this a lot, is that the teachers kept saying, well, we need to train children first. We need to sh make sure that they know what they're supposed to be doing. And there's, but there's all these negative racist assumptions about the kids and their families that, that keep preventing the children from ever getting to the point where they could prove that they can handle their agency. Um, and so Charles Mills calls this the personhood subpersonhood line. This lot like where if you're a full person, your rights and privileges, not only do you have them, they're protected by the larger society. And subpersons constantly have to prove that they're worthy of those rights and privileges and theirs are not protected. Um, and this kind of, this presence of that line just kept showing up over and over and over again. And it's the reason we are part of the reason we're all sustaining this line. We're all on parts of it. And we're, we're operating as if we, if we just try hard enough, if we just do certain things like white wealthy people do, we also will have their rights and privileges. And somehow that never, ever works. And part of his thing is that this, this version of white supremacy, this version of racism maintains itself over and over because we keep participating. Um, and we found that making children earn their agency um, was quite a dehumanizing process. And it was a way of um, sustaining this personhood, subpersonhood line. So Kiyomi, this is coming back to you to ask more about this idea of agency. Why is it so important in early childhood learning? And when you too in your writing are advocating for agentic learning experiences for all children, what exactly are you saying that school should be like for them? So one of the things that I would like to say is what is agency? So I'm just gonna say what this is. So agency is the ability to influence and make decisions about how and what is learned in order to expand capabilities. So we, we start from the premise that all children have agency. The question is, can they enact their agency at school? And with that, it's like some of the stuff that Jen was saying, do we, as teachers, as people in the schools, do we see children as a full humans? With that said, do we trust them that they can actually do the things we think they should do? And, and the problem is, it's many times that doesn't happen. Children don't get opportunity to enact their agency. So to me, it's the question, what exactly we need to do is actually to think about, are we allowing children to enact their agency in the classroom? And we have this conversation a lot with pre-service teachers. Um, are we allowing this to happen? And it's this not, it's like Jen said, it's not like picking up between the red and the blue Crayola. This is actually, what a type of choices we're allowing in our classroom that children can enact their agency. 
Are we allowing them to follow their interests? Are, they, are we listening to the things they're interested? Are we paying attention to how they're working together? Are they collaborating? Do they have opportunities to explore, uh, examine things with one another? Is that the type of question that we actually ask our, our pre-service teachers? We both work with uh, pre-service teachers and grad students. And that is kind of the thing. It's like in principles too, when we get to work with them, are children allowed, are they able to enact their agency in your school? And to give you an example, we, had, we were working with a principal in a, pre, um, in a school, and he had these lines all over the school for children to walk in the hallways. And after one of the, the, um, the trainings we have, um, he said, I think I want, my plan is to take them out and see what happened. I'm just gonna take them all out and see what happened. Um, and he did. And what happened is kids didn't go wild. They didn't walk on the walls. Nothing went crazy. They just actually got to walk in the hallway. And so it's to prove like this idea of like really looking at the, uh, for teachers and administrators looking with the lenses. Like if I'm looking with lenses of agency, how do I reimagine these spaces that I've been working and function this way forever, but why does it make any sense to do those, those things that we're always been doing? And can we incorporate other ways to think about, about children in a way that see their fullness um, and how Mills is saying, like the full humanity of young children. Can we do that? And when that happened, many of the stuff um, that actually happened in Miss Bailey can happen in many schools. Um, it wasn't, a, it was her classroom. It wasn't the whole school that functioned that way. It were decisions that they make as a class and, and because of the sense of community they have. So I'm not sure there's like a magical way to think about this, but actually to examine and to explore our own practices and how we envision those spaces for children in a way that humanize them, respect them, and allows them to enact their agency that all of them do have. Well, the next question was going to be, what is the magical way? So Jen, do you have any insight here on the policies or practices that would make sure kids do get more agency at school? Yeah, it's not magical necessarily, but we are finding things that, um, that seem to be working or that at least help. Um, one thing kind of aligned with what Kiyomi just said and also what we've learned from the racial contract and other writing by Charles Mills is that if we often get asked to do district-wide workshops or to do talks or to do, you know, some trainings or whatever around agency. And we've now learned to say, if you are embodying deficit thinking, if you are, if you can't say that children are smart and capable and not add, but they, you know, they have these families or these struggles or these whatever. If you can't just say that children are smart and capable, there's no way that we can do this. That these racist ideas that we carry about children and communities have to be tackled first before you can actually get to agency. So we found that racism is the number one barrier to children using their agency. You can't just give someone a practice. You can't just get them to think about it more. You really have to examine, like Kiyomi was saying, your fundamental ideas about children 
and your fundamental ideas about children of color since they're the most controlled at school. Um, and then once that happens, um, there is a decision-making process that happens within classrooms and within school districts. Um, principals often don't know a lot about early childhood. So part of it is teachers getting together. Um, one teacher cannot do this by themselves. Uh, if we've learned anything from young children, it's that when you use your agency, you almost always use it together. That's what little kids do. That's what teachers should do. Um, is coming together, educating principals on what or good early childhood classrooms look like and they're messy and they're noisy and kids are doing stuff at least some part of the day, not all the time. Um, teachers get to have their preferences too, but kids need some time to use their agency every day. Um, and then districts have to think about what they're evaluating when they watch teachers. And I've watched a lot of teach, I, we've worked with a lot of districts to shift their evaluation processes, but for so for so many districts and schools, evaluations are built on this like plan a lesson plan and how well do you stick to that lesson plan? And if you're following agency and you're opening up that space, following exactly the plan you had before is actually terrible and means that it doesn't matter who the kids are in front of you. You're just going to do whatever you're going to do anyway. Um, we all have to do some of that. We all operate in reality of standardized testing. Um, but there is a lot of leeway that we've watched teachers powerfully do. Um, and I think fundamentally, if you think children are really smart and capable um, and you rid yourself of that deficit thinking, which takes a lot of work for many of us, um, then you open yourself up to really to that space as a classroom or a school. And it produces pretty transformational shifts. So we're running out of time here. So I'll just close by asking each of you what you are working on now. Kiyomi, do you want to go out first? Yes, thanks. Um, so I'm going to be working on a project that got funded by the Spencer Foundation that I'm going to use video cue ethnography in kind of like a new way to actually create dialogue between uh, teachers and parents using the film like some of the interview from the parents, teachers uh, are gonna have opportunities to listen to. And this really comes from the idea of the deficit use of parents that we actually learned throughout the agency study um, and the methodology and how could be actually used also with pre-service teachers. Because one of the big barriers are these deficit ideas, but if teachers have opportunities to listen how parents think, um, their ideas they have, their hopes, and all the knowledge they bring with them, they'll see that they, that they have so much to offer. And so that's, that's my hope for this new project. And that's what I'm gonna be working on. That sounds really exciting. What about you, Jen? Um, so I'd say two things. One is I'm writing a new book um, about the ways that injustices uh, impact how children learn and develop and how sometimes we're always trying to fix kids, but really we should be fixing ourselves, <laughs> working our own stuff out, um, that they're actually amazing. And we have to fix some of these major injustices in society if we really want to find equity in terms of children's development. Um, the second thing is really grows out of this project. Kiyomi is part of this, this, this new big study that we're doing in this very large, amazing research team where we're actually trying to create a tool that can identify high agency classrooms, classrooms where children have a lot of agency, but make it very culturally flexible. So we're working with 10 
um, 10 uh, schools that are governed by their community um, and where we can kind of learn from them and they can critique and think about these ways that we can show up for agency. And ultimately our argument is if a classroom doesn't support agency, how can it even assess for capabilities? How can we know what children, what their skills and knowledge actually are? If it's so heavily controlled, can they really show you what they know and can do? So we really think that you have to assess the, the allowance for agency in a classroom before you can assess children and have, and have trust that you're actually getting an, a, a real view of what they know and can do. So we're, we're really thinking about assessment and assessing contacts rather than children first. That sounds really exciting too. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you.